John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. Entry 1213.JB0926, certificate number 39390, SS United States. Have you ever taken a cruise? Not really. I went to Antarctica once, but you're on like an old Soviet icebreaker that got repurposed into an Antarctic cruise industry. Mm-hmm. So it's not like anything anyone would picture as a cruise ship. I did not have delightful romantic adventures with Charo or, or, <laughs> other, or other stars of 1970s television. That is a reference that no futureling is going to get and no presentling is going to get a no, Charo reference. Everyone knows the Love Boat guest stars. I think I was there with Charo, John Davidson, uh-huh. and Suzanne Plachette. Ooh, cheeky wawa. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've spent quite a bit of time on cruise ships. Uh, is that right? Yeah, for most of my life, I would have not considered myself a cruiser. I would have avoided them at all costs. But when you turned 70, you decided... <laughs> That's right. Uh, Right around, yeah, right after I turned 40, I started to do a yearly cruise where I was one of the entertainers called the Jonathan Colton Cruise. Yeah, a lot of people in the future probably don't know about your ventriloquism act Uh because it doesn't translate well to podcast. I I ride a penny-farthing bicycle, I juggle (laughs) and do ventriloquism. Nobody can tell, but John's lips never move when he speaks this podcast. I don't know what the point is. It's like Edgar Bergen being a ventriloquist on the radio. Only you can see it. It is remarkable. It's a real treat to be the only one who gets to enjoy this. It's uh, Schrodinger's. Uh, uh, <laughs> it's a Sch- Schrodinger's ventriloquist. You guys, he just drank a glass of water while he made that ill-advised Schrodinger reference. It was great. But I've spent quite a bit of time cruising, and I've had. <laughs> uh, that's right. And I have. Uh, I've usually I'm in a pretty nice suite because I'm I'm one of the featured performers. And so I grew to be very aware of kind of the cruise industry. I Prior to being on cruises, right, when you're in traveling in Europe, you often cross from England to continental Europe or, or go through the islands of Greece on these. Those are like ferries. Yeah, quasi-cruise ships. They are. They're ferries, but they're built in a sort of, 
I mean, some of them are retired cruise ships. I mean, I went between Stockholm and the Oland Islands once, which are these little Finno-Swedish islands out in the Baltic. And you could get there in, I think, 40 minutes, really. But they slow it down and make you take six hours in hopes that people will buy a ton of duty-free cognac and Toblerone. Sure, and I'm sure they had a casino And go to the casino. The thing is this giant, you know, it's as tall as it is wide, I think. And they just want you to, like, you know, lose thousands of euros in the casino and then get to Finland or Estonia and be very sad. Yeah, I made the same crossing in the, er, not the same crossing, but in the 80s, I went from Calais to Dover on a ship and it took the entire night. I mean, we left at 6 p.m. and we got there at 7 in the morning. And so I always assumed that that was a 12-hour crossing. And later in a different trip, I crossed the channel, but I went an even greater distance to Hoek van Holland and I thought, oh, well, surely this will be all night. So I planned. You're, you're, you get on in pajamas with feet. Yeah. And I planned like, well, so I'll arrive in Holland after a, after a good night's sleep and it'll be morning. And in fact, that crossing is just a few hours long. And I arrived in Holland at 10 p.m. and was like, I have to get a hotel. Like, I have no idea where I am. You were ready to do like 10 hours of karaoke. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it actually is a 12-hour trip and you just had a blackout the second time, you know. Right, or it could have been a very strange situation where I was on a hydrofoil and didn't know it. Maybe you got brainwashed and had to do some top secret like mission in uh, Belgium or Bulgaria or something. I'm the Manchurian candidate, except... uh, (laughs) You you don't remember what happened during those eight hours, but did it start with somebody playing solitaire? Uh, But uh, before the advent of air travel, um, which is really still a a relatively new phenomenon. Shockingly recent for us. When my great-grandmother died, you know, she had lived through the Wright brothers, which is crazy. Right. Well, and and uh, I think, sure, my grandmother was a an adult person when the Wright flyer took to the skies. Wow. So transatlantic uh, sea travel was, for most of the history of the United States, a big part of the economy and a big part of, I mean, it was the only way, really, that we transacted with Europe. And it was a very unpredictable crossing because it was wind dependent. It also uh, was Gulf Stream dependent, extremely weather dependent. Uh, crossings could take 50 days or more if you got caught on the wrong side of, of the wind. Really? 50 days to get yeah. across the Atlantic? Even in the 19th century, uh, there were, you know, it was extremely undependable. And so moving from sailing ships to steam powered ships was a big advantage. And there was, there was a whole period where, because steamships initially were side paddle boats. And uh, if the weather was favorable, a sailing ship could easily best a side paddle steamship. Clipper ship would just blow by you in the HOV lane like you were standing still. Yeah. They could make that crossing in relative style. And a steamship was this slow moving chug, 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 chug kind of thing. But by the way, the SS in SS United States stands for screw steamer because back in the day there were paddle steamers you yeah. could cross the ocean on the ps whatever with a little side wheel right and uh, our our ss nomenclature is left over from when it was a novelty to have a propeller on your ship well and the propellers uh, the steel hull and the propellers were the things that i mean because those paddle steamers actually had masts and sails as well to kind of uh you know augment and also it was there as a reserve also i have some memory of a. Uh, is this like maybe in the movie Around the World in 80 Days where uh, they would run out of steam so they have to burn all the wooden stuff on the ship? So th- this, Toss in all the furniture and all the, dr- all the walls and everything? Yeah, this actually happened. Uh, they were burning the spars of ships. 
when they would get kind of stranded out there and have used all their wood. That's why you have a mast. <laughs> Just in case. This is our fuel reserve right here. Throw it in the burner. We're going to have to toss in three of the three of the below deck sailors. But uh, in the mid-19th century, so starting in about, let's say, uh, the 1830s, they, we started to make this crossing pretty regularly on schedule. And the Cunard line was part of this. I mean, there started to be like companies that had regularly scheduled trips back and forth across the Atlantic. It's the beginning of the world flattening. Let's connect North American money to European money. Right. And of course, it initiated a a competition because there were always sort of innovators and disruptors who wanted to see if they could get across faster. And the Cunard line maintained that they were elegant and prized safety over speed. So they were never the fastest. You were there for the linen napkins and the, you know, the accoutrement? Well, initially. But as time went on and naval technology increased, steel hulls and and first single screw and then double screw, multiple screw liners increased the speed and they had increased reliability. It became kind of a friendly competition at first, and then it was a real selling point if your ship or your company had the fastest crossing time, right? It was, uh, as that crossing went from 50 days to 15 days, it changed the dynamic. You could trade back and forth with Europe pretty flexibly. Yeah, you can see why. I mean, if if you've got a business trip to Europe or, you know, if you're spending a month in spending a summer in North America from Europe, it's a huge cut on either end if you are, you know, if you're going to spend 20 versus 30 days each way. You know, it'd be like looking at a plane fare today and being like, do I want the nonstop or do I want this 36-hour one where I'm going to be in the Boise airport overnight? You know, it, yeah, you'd pay a lot more for, you the, would. for the one that was just a few days shorter. And it became a, a matter of national pride, right? Because ah. your ability to build and and run these enormous ships, I mean, it wasn't something that any banana republic could do. So there were lines, uh, lines that were associated with their nation. Like Cunard was British. There was the Hamburg America line, which was uh, German. There were French lines. Like it, this was a this was a point of personal pride, and and spoke to your industrial capacity. Right. And right. you're, we, you're, it's you're, like a country boy buying a big truck or a middle aged man getting a sports car. Like our country has this sleek, fast liner. Yeah. And, and we are adopting like uh, modernity. This is, and, and also luxury was a component of this, right? Even, even Which, back then, right? Even back then. And so, as a part of that, eventually this competition kind of started to take on a more formal character. And by the late 19, or late 19th century, um, there was now an award called the Blue Ribbond. Ribbond? Uh, Is this French for blue or made up French for blue ribbon? Uh, I think it's blue ribbon. And I think my pronunciation is entirely made up. It could be blue ribboned. The name is Bond, <laughs> Blue Ribbon. <laughs> but the Blue Ribbon was uh, at first not a trophy, just a kind of a gentleman's agreement. But the holder of the blue rebond was kind of a uh, a point of pride, and also then became a very definitely like a almost like the America's Cup uh, international award for fastest Atlantic crossing. They wouldn't be going at the same time like a yacht race, but they would report how fast they got in. Yeah, and at first it was a matter of both both directional, right? Because if you're headed 
east, you have the Gulf Stream working with you. Yes. And so the eastern crossing is always going to be faster than the western crossing. So there were two awards, fastest eastern, fastest western. That makes sense. Because if you're going to Europe, you're excited. You want to get there. If you're going back to America, you're like, eh, <laughs> Cleveland. But also at first it was uh, an award based on average time because there were a lot of different routes and there wasn't one established sort of crossing. It was more a question of how, what was your fast, the fastest speed that you maintained across uh-huh. the Atlantic? So it's not like high jump where it's the one best one you can do. Yeah. You got you got It's the reliability of the company. Although it, it, it eventually became an award, you know, based on a discrete distance between two points. And this award traded hands back and forth many, many times over the years. So from the point that the blue rebond, I really, I need to know if that's the correct pronunciation. Yeah, it's Rabond. Yeah, all right. I'm sure it is. I just like how it sounds like some made-up food award, like <laughs> Julia Child fake French thing. <laughs> uh, there were 35 separate Atlantic ocean liners that held the award at one point or another. The Queen Mary, the Lusitania, the Mauritania, like a lot of sort of legendary ships held this award and traded it back and forth. And sometimes the Quadrophenia, the, the, yeah, the, the Pyromania, Bremen, uh, they, uh, sometimes, you know, the Bremen only held it for a few, you know, a brief few months. Uh, the Queen Mary had it for 12 years. I mean, it was a type of thing that you could develop a technology and beat all comers or you could be surpassed kind of in a short amount of time. Sure. It's like the Yankees versus the, you know, the one year the Kansas City Royals had the best year. Right. Um, the Lusitania held it at one point. And of course, the Lusitania very famously was sunk by a German U-boat during World War One. It was one of the things that precipitated the American entrance into the war. I mean, obviously, a couple of years later. Uh, and the Lusitania, at the time of her sinking... She was regarded as a peacetime, you know, a peaceful civilian ship. And so the Germans sinking her was considered outrageous and a violation of the international code. The Germans asserted that the ship was actually full of explosives and munitions. Right. Do we know that for a fact now? Like, what does history say? Well, and the British denied it for, for decades. And then in the 80s, when the technology arrived that you could actually salvage the ship... And people started talking about raising the Lusitania or going down and salvaging it. Uh, the, Suddenly. Yeah. And a spokesman for the Admiralty uh, had to come out and say, actually, it's completely full of <laughs> super volatile explosives and you should not mess with it. You got to love it when James Cameron gets the Admiralty to blink <laughs> in his little sub with the little arms. Yeah, it was pretty, it was, I think, probably pretty embarrassing to them, but it put that Certainly that sinking in context. But that was a real danger in crossing several times this last century was the fact that you could get torpedoed and everyone would die. Right. And these ships, these enormous uh, sailing ships that were part of this golden age of, of oceanic travel were very important instruments of war because if the United States was sending troops to Europe, uh, these ships were the most efficient way to move Tons and tons of troops at one time. Right. The government does not have a fleet of passenger ships they can commission to get tens of thousands of Americans to Europe. They would just use existing liners, right? They would. And in fact, that motivated a portion of the government involvement in building these ships. So these ships not only had this kind of nationalistic character like 
for instance, the Hindenburg Zeppelin was a was a real representative of Germany at that point. These ships were the flagships of their country. And when they were built, they were built with troop transport in mind because they were requisitioned by the government in time of war. So it wasn't just an afterthought. It was part of the strategy. Someday we're going to kick Billy Zane off the Titanic (laughs) and put like eight GIs in that stateroom. It's going to be great. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free, plus $20 off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. That's butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. So during World War II, the United States captured some French liners that had happened to be in port in New York when the French government capitulated to the Germans. And this was a, you know, the French Navy was a very powerful Navy at the time. And in capitulating to the Nazi invasion, most of the French Navy was actually in port in North Africa. Ah. And there was a, a crisis, I guess, where the, the, I mean, no, not I guess, it was a real crisis, where the French Navy couldn't quite decide, the naval leadership couldn't decide who their allegiance was to. And the British made this pretty impassioned case that the Navy in exile should surrender their ships to uh, the British to be used against the Germans. But then there was a Vichy government in France, all of southern France maintained an actual French government, although a Nazi puppet government. And so the naval commanders of the French Navy felt they owed their allegiance to this. That's how strong the chain of command is. I mean, I assume the military only works if you will follow your commanding officer, even when there's a Nazi standing right behind them. (laughs) That's right. Uh, That's that. We see that even today. (laughs) No, it's very hypothetical. I don't don't know what you're talking about (laughs) there. In fact, that, that question was put to the, uh, the commander of, of the Navy in the Pacific. If he were ordered by our current president to strike with nuclear weapons, a target, let's say, in Asia, um, for example. For example, uh, would he would he fulfill the command? And he, and, I mean, this was an interview, a public interview. <laughs> right. He said, "Of course, no. I no." <laughs> <laughs> what a scoop for Reader's Digest. <laughs> There's a coup. But so we did not feel any compunction about war grabbing these we, French. We liners. had to. They were not Nazi ships, otherwise. That's right. And so we used those ships as troop transports during the war. And after the war, we, the United States felt very strongly that we needed our own signature purpose-built super fast cruise ship that would be a symbol of our prowess, but also could function as a troop ship in time of war. 
previously we did not have one. Although you could argue that we were a few decades into the American century, we were a little bit behind the times as far as big symbolic national symbol liners, huh? Yeah, it wasn't really our forte. And we did have a, a shipping or like a cruise ship line uh, called the United States Lines, which actually was founded in part by Kermit Roosevelt, uh, second oldest son of Theodore Roosevelt. Oh, wow. Uh, but it was mostly a, a secondary consideration compared to these big European shipping companies. And I guess that's a sign of America's long-held isolationist kind of tendencies. It was just a, a little less important to us to to be on the high seas that way. Well, we were, I mean, we certainly had uh, a, and tried to maintain a powerful Navy, but it just wasn't, uh, I mean, just as right now, most of the cruise ships in the Caribbean are owned and operated by Dutch companies. It just wasn't, uh, it wasn't a big part of our national identity to have a luxury cruise ship empire. It's like soccer. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Everyone else seems very into it, but nah, not our thing. I mean, if you're, if you live in Portland and Seattle, I guess, if you like to drink beer, you are also a, por a soccer fan. You have to pretend. Yeah. My favorite thing was when Portland got their soccer team and their very first game against the Seattle team, it was announced, it's the big rivalry game. <laughs> Well, how could it possibly be the big rival? That'd be like a newborn baby being a rival to me or something. Like, we don't have a rivalry yet. You can't just say there's a rivalry. Yeah, you can talk about it at the end of the game, but not before the game starts. I didn't like that we had a scheduled rivalry. Don't tell me how to feel, Portland Timbers. Uh, so at the in 1950, we started work on the SS United States, which was funded in large part by the U.S. Navy but sort of under the auspices of the United States line. So it wasn't explicitly a naval ship, but the U.S. Navy poured a ton of money into it. Because this was the beginning of the Cold War, is that right? I mean, That's right. And we had, our World War II experiences had shown us that when it's in time of need, you need to be able to move a lot of people across the ocean in rapid time. So it was built with being a troop ship, with being able to be converted into a troop ship, pretty rapidly Just get rid of the chocolate fountain put a bunch of tanks there <laughs> well yeah put put a bunch of bunk beds uh but this Shame was about the chocolate fountain though it is well you know the chocolate fountain was there nothing's too good for our troops in my opinion in fact the chocolate fountain from the ss uh united states is in elon musk's living room <laughs> as we speak he uses it as a satellite dish yeah it's pointed at his evil satellite <laughs> network and the lasers are all ready to go chocolate covered satellite dish <laughs> Uh, but the the boat, this was right before air travel. It was certainly before jet travel. And during an era when cross-Atlantic air travel was still an extremely expensive and rarefied world. It was not available to most people. And this was the, the genteel crossing of the North Atlantic on a cruise ship was a big social event. It was a it was something that had multiple tiers of class so that you could ride in steerage and make it the, make the crossing pretty cheaply if you were emigrating, for instance, or you could wear a tuxedo every night to dinner and be Cary Grant and, and have this as part of your European tour or your, your wealthy summer. And you might meet Cary Grant, you know, that's how celebrities got back and forth. That's right. That, and the captain's table was still a big, a, a big deal in the world. Uh, so 1950, we built this cruise ship and it, it kind of didn't anticipate that maybe these were the waning years. 
But because of our post-war boom in technology, we were going to throw everything at this ship and use all of our the technology we developed during the war to make the ultra-modern liner. And prior to this, big fires on ships was a real problem. Ships were outfitted, like decorated in wood that had been sort of shellacked with maybe the most flammable substance on the on the planet. <laughs> what could go wrong? And fires would break out all the time, and they were real disasters. So as part of the mandate for this ship, it was decreed that there would be no wood at all on the boat. Oh, wow. And everything was made out of aluminum. At the time, would that read as fancy? Because today you'd look at that and it would it would seem kind of, you know, Ikea dorm room. It, you know, it, it, it might seem fashion forward. It was but it, super. It would not seem luxurious. Super fancy and super contemporary. And actually there was a, there were metallurgical problems in connecting aluminum to steel because aluminum in contact with steel corrodes. Aluminum used to be a very rare and fancy element too. Like to this day, the tip of the Washington Monument is made of aluminum because in its day, that was the future. Can you yeah. believe that much aluminum in one place? Look at it. Well, because aluminum takes a lot of power to refine. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not that it's difficult as much as it is just incredibly expensive. But that was the uranium of its day, yeah. you know? Ah, the future, aluminum. And so it, it was very modern and everything on the SS United States was purpose made explicitly for the ship. I mean, can you imagine? And I think we now do think of of aluminum furnishings as being kind of cheap because actually it was a big part of the uh, electrification of the West with hydroelectric dams that we suddenly had cheap enough power that we could refine aluminum at no great expense. It became a, it became a simpler process because we a lot of aluminum plants are located really close to dams in the American West. We'd have to wrap our sandwiches in waxed paper still, if not for Hoover Dam. Can you imagine? I wouldn't be able to throw uh, 16 aluminum beer cans into my backyard pool every afternoon as part of my ritual of pouring beer out into my lawn. We might still say aluminium <laughs> because it would be such a rare old-timey thing. We would say it the old-timey way. Ugh. Uh, so the SS, SS United States launched and immediately on its debut crossing... Hit an iceberg. No. It did not. It avoided the icebergs. We figured out that technology. Nice. You shouldn't have a guy on a <laughs> tall pole looking for icebergs. I think we had, this is post-war, so we had radar That's true. at this point. Uh, but the SS United States won the Blue Ribbon. Nice. USA. That's right. USA. Uh, won it on its, uh, on its eastern crossing and won it on its western crossing back. Do we know what it took to cross the Atlantic in those days? Like how fast could the SS United States get from... Brooklyn to Southampton or whatever the route is. So in the crazy, crazy advancement of the technology at this point, uh, the SS United States was able to maintain an average speed of 35 knots, which is extraordinarily fast. I mean, uh, part of the advances in hull technology, some of the limitations rather, are that there is a kind of sound barrier within fluid dynamics within uh, how fast a boat can travel through the water. Oh, it's analogous to getting a plane above the, the sound barrier Mach 1 in the air. Basically, yeah, the, as a bow cuts through the water, it creates a, a bow wave, which as the ship goes faster, the bow wave gets bigger, and, and eventually it reaches a kind of place where the drag is 
is so great that you can't increase the speed. And there was a time when it felt when it was kind of suspected that like the sound barrier it wasn't breakable. The sound barrier was difficult to break because that the reverberations uh, and drag threatened to shake the airplane apart. Right. So there was a, a naval engineer by the name of Frude who developed this Frude number. Did he develop a new vowel to say his name also? <laughs> Frude. <laughs> Not previously in existence. Frude. Uh, and he, so uh, Bernoulli had these flu- fluid dynamic, the Bernoulli principle. Is right. This, it's why your shower curtain uh, drifts uh, in toward the water, I yeah, think. Yeah, it's how a straw works. Uh, Frude, kind of like uh, maybe even oblivious to Bernoulli, came up with this number, which was which had to do with flow velocity. And what it meant was that uh, ships that have a certain ratio of their length to their width and to their to the hull construction uh-huh. can actually exceed whatever the the sound barrier was and create velocity through the water that exceeds this ratio. Once you can break through that. The sky's the limit? Yeah, well, maybe not the sky's the limit, but you certainly can achieve these enormous speeds. And that's why, for instance, uh, nuclear-powered aircraft carriers owned by the United States do not release their top speed because it's a it's a matter of national security. It's, oh, interesting. It's considered to be a, a, like a top-secret figure. Couldn't you just ask any seagull? I mean, it, it can't be a well kept secret there uh, the suspicion is that it's above 40 knots um which is pretty darn fast and i I, having been on several cruise ships that really push the throttle down at a certain point uh the tail fin not fin what is it called the the, rudder no the wave that comes off the stern the wake the wake but there's a there's actually it creates this this rooster tail Ah. uh that is multiple stories high (laughs) <laughs> and I actually went on a on a, like an outboard motor. Does it tip up in the back? Does the love bow go? <laughs> I think it does. Yeah. I've been on the USS Abraham Lincoln, which is a an aircraft carrier, and uh, in Puget Sound, I spent a day out traveling around. And at one point, he put the pedal to the metal, and that rooster tail. I mean, we were standing on the fan tail of the boat watching it. It's fourteen stories high. I mean, it's, it's incredible. A really incredible thing. It is funny though, because on land, you know, you're talking about 40 or 50 miles an hour, you know, it's, it's, it's not to our generation, not a dizzying speed on land, but the ocean's just a whole different ballgame. It is. And in this initial crossing at 35 knots, the SS United States went on this prescribed route, which is from Bishop Rock, uh, or I'm sorry, it's from the Ambrose Lightship, which is a, a lighthouse on a ship that kind of is anchored off uh, New York Harbor. Mm-hmm. To Bishop Rock at Cornwall in the That's United Kingdom. That's the lighthouse Kingdom. in the southwest United Kingdom. Right. I think the Bishop Rock is, uh, used to be the smallest inhabited island in the world. Because if you look at a picture of it, it's just the size of the lighthouse. <laughs> really? And, and yeah, before it was automated, there was a guy living there. And it, as a result, it was the smallest inhabited island in the world. It was like smaller than a tennis court. That's fantastic. So the SS United States made that crossing in three days and 10 hours. Jeez. Yeah. Wait, really? Three days. Because today, if you take the Queen Mary 2... I think they can do it in six days, but they usually take seven. And I think they slow it down so you can use the casino. <laughs> right. They want you to They want you to not miss the variety show. Somebody's going to be covering sting songs. Uh, and I think it's more fuel efficient to take the extra day. But even at that speed, it's so fast that they have to actually set the clock back an hour every day at noon 
So can you imagine the days are getting shorter and shorter? You're getting, you're getting compressed into Greenwich Mean Time. You're getting you, less and less cruise time all the time. As you get across the ocean. And if the, uh, if the SS United States was doing it in three, like every day at noon, they'd be like, all right, change, set your watch two hours back. Well, their clocks moved just like a montage in a film where the... the, the <laughs> yeah, that'd be funny if they, you don't set it back, the clocks just move uh, 20% faster. Yeah, the minute hand goes a minute and a half every, every uh, minute. <laughs> Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com slash start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start. Uh, so this is a record that the SS United States holds to this to day. To this day? No one else ever made a ship that could beat it across the Atlantic. So not just a, cross, not just a, a, a cruise liner making a crossing of any ship. That's the best you can do. This is it. Three days and 10 hours. That's nuts. Um, and, and part of the reason is that this was, like I say, the dying era of this idea that crossing the Atlantic as fast as you can right. was an advantage, like an economic advantage. Now, who wants to go on a three-day cruise? I mean, a three-day cruise, I mean, I guess there are three-day cruises out of Fort Lauderdale all the time, long weekend. But that's not how you would choose to get to Europe, No, typically. I mean, the second there's a eight or 10-hour option, um, the difference between three days and six days is irrelevant. And so throughout the later 50s, I mean, as soon as you could cross the Atlantic in five hours from New York to London, people stopped cruising in the same way. And it still was thought of as an elegant way to make the crossing. And you could absolutely carry a lot more steamer trunks so named because you took them on On steamer. steamer. But if you were uh, taking a break from Bryn Mawr to go spend a year in Italy. Go see the the marbles in Florence. Right. you You could still take the SS United States. But eventually by the late 60s, kind of like the American Railroad, also fell upon hard times during this period. Uh, no one was taking passenger trains either because... Same reason. Yeah, jet travel became inexpensive and so much more efficient that one by one, these steamers went into retirement and were scrapped. And the SS United States sailed its final time in the late 60s. Oh, it didn't. It didn't last long at all. It had less than 20 good years. That's right. And went sort of into mothballs. Um, there was a whole... And, and in fact... Uh, Bill Clinton was, as a young man, took the ship, and he actually figured in later uh, into the story. But Bill Clinton rode the SS United States as a precocious young teen as part of, I don't know, whatever, what it was, his Peace Corps service or something. Heading off to annoy the, annoy the exchange <laughs> students and the young ladies in, uh, on the continent. That's right, the University of Leiden. Uh, so the United States went now through a long and inglorious period where it was 
shuttled from port to port. Sort of initially it was in Virginia Beach or Newport News, and then it got towed hither and yon. And it's expensive to store a ship. Sure. And so eventually in order to pay the expenses, the very singular furniture and custom-made appurtenances of the SS United States were auctioned off. Wow, just like tossing them into the, the stove of a paddle steamer, huh? Yeah, that's very similar. They needed to pay its birthing fees, and so they sold off all the china. In fact, if you go on eBay today and type in SS United States, you can find all manner of ephemera, including you know wine glasses and and the blankets that they that they had in all the staterooms. You shouldn't taunt our future listeners with the amount of SS United States ephemera available to us in our time. Well, I'm sure eBay will continue to be the dominant form of commerce in the future as, as it is in the, in the present. Uh, so the SS United States, because it was built during this fire paranoid era and, and uh, made entirely of aluminum, it was also 100% covered in asbestos. Oh, great. And it was a it was an environmental catastrophe, and went in one of its many sojourns from port to port. Was towed to the Ukraine, where it spent quite a bit of time in Sebastopol, being deasbestosized, deasbestified. Uh, and this was at a time I think in the Ukraine where there were no. I'm sorry, I said the Ukraine. What I mean is this was a time in Ukraine. Ah, very it does, good. It does not have the word the in front of it. Like CIA. Like CIA. If you want to sound like you're on the inside, don't say the CIA. You do not say the CIA and you do not say the Ukraine. But at the time, there was a shipbreaking industry in Sebastopol and they cleaned out all the asbestos uh, at great expense. And I'm sure, I'm sure many, many <laughs> sure people died. to <laughs> organs and tissues as well. Uh, and then eventually... Uh, the ship was towed back to the United States because there began this process of believing that we could restore the SS United States to seaworthy condition. And as cruising became a new pleasure activity. What's the era on this? When are we talking? It was 1984 when they did this final auction of all of her insides. And then... Only about 10 years later, in the early 90s, there was now this cruising culture developing in the Caribbean. You're not supposed to say cruise when you take a transatlantic crossing, by the way. You'll get corrected. It's like saying the Ukraine. Oh, what, what is a transatlantic it's crossing? It's a crossing. You're, oh. you're not on a cruise. You're on a crossing because like, you're serious. You've got someplace to go. Not like these cruise guys that just want to, you know, party in the casino. Well, so it was the early 90s, and I guess it was in Ukraine because, uh, because it was post the dissolution of the Soviet Union that she was towed to Ukraine to be stripped of asbestos, and that was in preparation for being restored. But it turned out to be kind of too expensive, and the company went into receivership, and eventually the ship herself was towed back to the United States and docked in South Philadelphia at a berth there with the idea that, that there was still the potential to restore her to seaworthiness. In 1997, she was purchased at auction for $6 million. $6 million? $6 million. I mean, that's a lot of money, but still. Considering that a fully functioning cruise ship costs in the hundreds of millions of dollars sure. to, to build. I feel like somebody got a deal. 
Well, so did they. Uh, he was a man named Edward Cantor, and he formed a, a uh, kind of a foundation, the, the SS United States Foundation and the SS United States Conservancy. Ah, or, he wants to restore it yeah. to its previous non-asbestos-covered glory, I guess. And uh, they were a preservation society, and they sought and succeeded in getting the ship registered as a historic place. Mm. Can um, the ship really be a place? Is it really a place if you can just move it to Ukraine? Well, I suppose you could move the Statue of Liberty to Ukraine if you wanted to. It's the difference between a mobile home and a manufactured home. I guess. <laughs> I just feel like there should be a separate list of historic things that are very large but are still mobile. That's what you would call it, in fact. The historic, yeah, but what are some other things like that? What are historic things that are, are like national institutions that also move? I feel like the San Francisco trolley cars are on some kind of list of, oh. of national historic places. And, uh, you know, yeah, they move around. Yeah, I suppose that's it, true. It's mostly ships and submarines and dry dock, I think. Yeah. The, uh, the Saturn V rocket on display in Huntsville, Alabama is a uh, national historic place. And that's, a, that's something that could go to the moon, you know? Like, sure. Uh, well, probably not anymore. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend it. Uh, so the ship sitting there in Philadelphia began this pretty awful process of changing hands. Uh, in 2003, she was purchased by the Norwegian Cruise Line, who performed a feasibility study to see if she could be restored to service. Then she was purchased by some Malaysian company. She was purchased by, she traded hands multiple times. And one of the reasons, there's a reason that there is so much sort of energy devoted to getting the USS United States back on the water. And it's because of the Jones Act, which is an act uh, passed long ago, stipulating that any ship that wants to transact business between two American ports without stopping in a foreign port needs to be an American flagged ship that was constructed in the United States and crewed with a United States crew. And this has been much in the news lately after, uh, Hurricane Maria wrecked Puerto Rico. Uh, the Jones Act was actually briefly waived, I think, to allow humanitarian aid to reach faster. That's right. But typically, this is why all cruise ship companies are foreign flagged. You have the Norwegian Cruise Lines, you have the Holland America, um, because... Is this some act of protectionism that backfired on us? Uh, well, a little bit, and it continues to cause considerable kind of economic problem in that uh, from... Seattle to Alaska, which is a popular cruise destination. Right. They have to make a stop in Canada. <laughs> you act like it's terrible. They have to make a stop in, can you be believe it? Canada, <laughs> a place no one would otherwise go. And for a while, uh, those cruises had to leave from Vancouver because Seattle and the United States made some, yeah, right, some unholy protectionist deal that, that kept Seattle out of the cruise business. Huh. Uh, so the Jones Act creates this problem, and most cruise companies are, most cruise ships are staffed by a very multinational group of, of employees. But if a company were able to restore the, the SS United States to cruise worthiness, they could circumvent the Jones Act. 
Because it predates it? Is it grandfathered in? Because it was constructed in the United States. Ah. And cruise ships aren't made in the United States. So either you could start a cruise ship manufacturing industry here, which would be very expensive and not a very reasonable thing to do, or grandfather in one of these ships. And so what are the U.S. to U.S. routes you could run on the Jones? I would go from... Without stopping in a uh, without stopping in a foreign country, I would just go between Portland and Seattle, so I could watch all the rivalry soccer games. Well, you could take cruises from Seattle to Los Angeles, or you could take cruises from Boston to Miami. I mean, there are a lot of interesting routes that I think smaller ships actually do. There are routes up the eastern seaboard to watch the leaves change. There are obviously ferries. Hawaii to Alaska cruises. Well, and they uh, look so close together in that little inset in the lower left of the map, but brother, they're not. They are not close at all. And and from San Francisco to Hawaii was another uh, example of a cruise line that periodically they exempted from the Jones Act just because that was the only way you could reach Hawaii. Right. It was kind of considered a foreign country. Oops. But, nice one, Jones, whoever you are. But now it's very difficult to take a cruise. Uh, from San Francisco to Hawaii, because again, there's no ship that meets that requirement. Anyway, so many, many years passed as the SS United States sat moldering in South Philadelphia while her ownership changed hands. And it has been a popular cause celeb because it's such, such an attractive idea. And there have been proposals to turn her into a floating casino uh, there have been proposals to turn her into a condominium. Nice. Uh, I bet it doesn't hurt that it has United States as the name, you know, like look at the symbol of our nation in decline, kind of in decline. And it is a beautiful ship. I mean, looking at her, she is a kind of mid-century design that uh, we'll never see the like of again. She's the pinnacle of the art form, right? And if you look at modern cruise ships, they are ugly, ugly things. They're They're just basically hotels stacked on top of a, of a container ship. Um, and this ship has elegance and grace. So, but no water slides, uh, no water slides. And in fact, one of the things that keeps her from being restored, although she still has her steam engines intact, they wouldn't really be restorable in, I mean, it would be as more expensive to restore them to operating condition than it would be to just replace the engines. But if you wanted to replace the engines, you would have to replace Great big portions of the stern, in which case you would be rebuilding the boat, in which case um, it would cost $400 million. But in order to keep her in port, she uh, the, the cost of her moorage is $60,000 a month. Oh. And so throughout the 2000s, she's been in a state of constant, imminent danger of being scrapped. Uh, uh, multiple times she's been at the end of her lease. There's no more money. The conservancy is defunct. It's all over. And then some benefactor arrives and is enamored with the idea again and puts $500,000 into an account and keeps her there. Um, in 2016, Crystal Cruises, a company that I'm that has not really taken the world by storm yet. Someplace to go to get norovirus, probably. Sorry if you sponsor our show, Crystal Cruises. <laughs> Uh, Crystal Cruises spent over a million dollars trying to decide whether they could return the SS United States to service. This is only 2016, not that long ago. Not to our listeners. Not, oh, well, to our listeners, right? This is all compressed into, it might as well be the Roman Empire. Uh, but 
at the end of their million dollar study, they determined that again, too expensive to restore to service. But on their way out the door, they put $350,000 in the, in the kitty. To keep kicking it down the road. To kick her, kick her down the road. So as it stands, she remains moored in South Philadelphia, completely stripped of all accoutrements, a, a bare aluminum shell, still seaworthy. And everyone who's done this research uh, into making her uh, viable again determines that she's still afloat and could easily be returned to service if you were prepared to spend $500 million to put all those little teacups and all those little aluminum beds back into her hall. And that concludes SS United States. Entry 1213.JB0926, certificate number 39390, in the omnibus. In the unlikely event social media still exists in your era, we can be found on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Omnibus Project. I was at Ken Jennings. John was at John Roderick on Twitter and indeed Instagram. We also had an email address a popular form of written electronic communication, which certainly does not exist in your area. But just if you're keeping notes at home, we were Omnibus Project at HowStuffWorks.com. Uh, listeners from our vantage point in the bilge of the SS United States, currently docked in Sebastopol, we have no idea how long, how much longer our uh, broken civilization will last. But we hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear, the sinking of our ship of state, will never come. If the worst does come soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. Omnibus.